0: Why do we cry? How come love hurts? And what's a happiness researcher doing talking about sadness anyway? My name's Helen Russell. I'm an author, journalist and happiness researcher. And How To Be Sad is a podcast based on my book of the same name, exploring why we get sad, what to do when we're sad, and how we can all get happier by learning to be sad better. In this podcast, I'll be talking to people from all walks of life, And each episode, I'll be joined by a special guest sharing their own story. Welcome to How To Be Sad. Five years ago, my guest lived in town, had two cats, and barely knew the difference between hay and straw. Now she's someone with an account at an agricultural merchant's who knows how to organize a spinal block for a goat. Writer and campaigner Rebecca Schiller moved her family to a rural smallholding in the hope of a simpler life. But she soon found that life wasn't any simpler and was a damn sight harder in many ways. She has written movingly about how we can never escape ourselves, no matter how much we try, as well as her experiences with depression, anxiety and living with undiagnosed ADHD until recently. Rebecca says now, everyone, including me, wants neat and happy endings to stories of chasing a dream society encourages us to believe that we are one thing or the other happy or sad good or bad right or wrong that we must pick an angle but i think it's fair to say that we're all beginning to understand that life is a little more complicated and nuanced than that and as rebecca has also written nature is not a simple fix so rebecca thank you so much for joining me today
1: Oh, thank you very much for having me i'm excited to to talk to you can we start a few
0: years back, if that's okay, the summer of 2016 of the Brexit vote and the Trump campaign, when you started to feel the itchings of change? Tell me about that time.
1: Well, we were living in um, Ramsgate at the time. So it was a fairly high intensity place to be during the Brexit campaign. Um, Nigel Farage actually ran in our our constituency. He was campaigning in our street. So It was a very, uh, a time of quite extremes in our local area. And we were also just sort of come out of that baby, small toddler stage with our second. I'd been writing, I'd written a book with a baby, sort of, you know, (laughs) stuck to me. And it was kind of that itching moment for me of what's next. We went away for, I was doing some journalism, so we were away for about six weeks in the summer, mainly in Wales, in a series of places where we didn't have much internet, we were working but it was in a slightly different way and we were outside a lot i'd always found myself relaxed and stilled by being outdoors by being in nature and experiencing that for an extended period of time with the kids with my husband we started to feel like we were happier we were more connected even if it involved boiling water more more often what we lost And gained from being away from Wi-Fi, from not having the TV in our lives. We had, you know, kids who would come in, and and the way that children do, they'd see the TV, and we'd be like, "No, don't watch it yet." Just not having it there suddenly removed that, and so we we started to think maybe we need to look at doing things a little bit differently. And I. Found myself on right move, looking at small holdings, um, which I think is often my way of dealing with things. <laughs> I think a lot of
0: people do. I hear a lot from people who are dealing with life changes, and then they think, "Oh, next step, right move." So <laughs> you're not alone. And by January 2017, so that just the following year,
1: you had moved. Is that right? Yes. Friends have always have sort of said, "Oh, the thing about you is that you know lots of people talk about things, but you usually do them," and that is. That is true. I, uh, if I get my teeth into an idea and I now uh, understand a little bit more why that is, I can't leave that alone. And I, uh, that motivates me um, beyond reason sometimes and beyond the very reasonable doubts that people have, um, which has its good sides and its bad sides. But yeah, we, we found pretty much the only place we could afford and um, moved ourselves into a two acre small holding in the Kent countryside.
0: And this is what I'm, so I, I'm talking to you now and I can see lovely ceiling beams and quite a sort of rustic looking background. So this is the house now that you moved into. And so you have written very movingly about how the simple life is not always that much simpler. Tell me how it was. I I read that you were literally counting chickens <laughs> and that it's, you know, it's a huge challenge and straining on personal relationships and you know physically and mentally. Can you share some of the challenges that you weren't expecting?
1: I think rationally, I'd always known that Anything involving having a bit of land, having some animals, trying to actually remove some of the convenient things and do things in would, would be time consuming and hard work. But I think I also hadn't considered the impact of that on a very full life. So yeah, we had two small children, one of whom wasn't in school. I had three different jobs uh, at the time. I was CEO of a small charity that was doing much bigger things than, than it's sort of staff staffing um, really allowed for. I was writing a book, a big book for a big publisher, and I was doing journalism on the side. And my husband is also self-employed. So we had a lot already. And I didn't go gently into the small holding thing. I sort of, I'm going to grow all the vegetables. I'm a theme here. Yeah, I need to learn to make my own raised beds and... I think I had before we'd moved here been reaching a point where some of the ways I coped with life were unmanageable given the level of responsibility and busyness. I didn't realise that. In what respect? So my approach to things being difficult and feeling like too much is to dig in harder and to try harder. I guess when you're in your when you're in your twenties, you're sharing a house. And you've got, you know, a, a job that isn't managing loads of people. You can do that. But If you've got to try harder across areas of your life that are, they are too big to try hard your way out of. But that is the only way you know how to be. Then it becomes very difficult because, um, for me, that the trying hard became kind of essentially very manic. And so my my relationship with a small holding quickly became quite a a battle. I had this weird anxiety about vegetables. So if someone would say, oh, are you growing celeriac? And I wasn't growing celeriac. It'd be a genuine feeling of panic. And I would know that that was was bonkers. No one even likes celeriac. No one likes celeriac. That's the thing about celeriac. It's a big brain. But it was a real feeling like, well, I'm not doing it right if I'm not growing celeriac. And I would go and get some celeriac seeds. And we, we ran out of space in the vegetable garden. So I made some new raised beds, even though I was already, you know, overwhelmed. And, and my approach to feeling as if I was stressed and strained was to think, well, I need, I need to reconnect with some hobbies. I need to take up horse riding and I need to go running. And so by the end of our first summer, I got myself on a sort of 30 minute schedule from six in the morning till 10 o'clock at night. And I was running simply to get between one place and the other and, and it looked kind of amazing from the outside and sometimes it was amazing from the inside but it was it was something that eventually led me to a sort of complete collapse Um, and I need to work out how to do things in a different way. And can you share a bit about what that felt like and what happened? It's a slightly complicated story to tell because it didn't happen all in one go but about a year after we moved here I was talking to a friend who said I was explaining that I didn't really get any pleasure from anything anymore. You know, she'd had to badger me to see her. And I was like, I'm really sorry. Like, I really want to see you. It's just that everything, even arranging to see you and get like, it just, everything takes something from me at the moment. And she was like, do you think you might be, you might be unwell? And I sort of had a realisation then that I, that I wasn't doing so well. And for a couple of years, I... Had some therapies on my GP, we talked about depression and anxiety. I dialed back on some of the work stuff, and I kept thinking I'm getting better. Because depression
0: that is often, you know, the, the lack of finding pleasure in things is often one of the things that doctors will flag and think, oh yes, well it's that.
1: Absolutely. And and I I'm not saying I wasn't depressed or that I'm not depressed, but it certainly never felt to me like depression and anxiety ticked. I was like, oh, I under- I get it now. Because I also knew that I was. Very capable of taking loads of risks and doing lots of things that I wasn't anxious about. The anxiety seemed quite specific. I felt full of energy, actually, a lot of the time, full of motivation. And it was a real uh, peaks and dips. And I started to wonder whether I might have bipolar disorder. And I would definitely think I was feeling better. And then suddenly something small would happen. And it was a good two and a half years after we moved here that I really had a complete emotional collapse and collapse, just unable to do anything. I kind of went out into my garden and pulled up all the stuff I'd spent, you know, two years growing, you know, pulled it out with my hands, and really, you know, couldn't understand how I was how I was feeling this way. And that that's the year I write a lot about in the book that eventually led to me realising that maybe ADHD was the thing that was underlying this and was maybe causing the mental health issues
0: and and that feels as though because i like you and you write about in earth that we grow up often being told that that is something that children um get diagnosed with especially boys because actually a very good friend of mine has recently um in her 40s had a diagnosis of adhd so it's sort of i was very your story really resonated with me and i'm wondering how you even began to think that's what i might look for
1: I write about in the book that one of the ways that I had to sort of help myself out of this, you know, moment of of crisis and breakdown. Um, I wasn't getting much help from the NHS at the time, despite my GP trying really, really hard. And I sort of, I turned to quite a lot of research about my my plot. (laughs) So I started looking at the, you know, started looking at the species of the trees and through that discovering some things about the women who would used to live and work on the land. I let myself fall down all of these internet wormholes quite often because I found that very soothing. Um, and I think actually it replicates the way that my brain naturally works. One thing leads to the other, leads to the other, leads to the other. And one one of my internet wormholes, I just happened to click on a, a piece that someone had shared um, about adult ADHD. And I have no idea why I clicked on it, though very strangely, when I was researching and writing the book, I realised that I'd clicked on it six months previously and screenshotted it. I had no memory of it at all. But I'd been on there and had actually taken screenshots of this piece that hadn't gone in, but, but I'd known somehow to leave this little bread, breadcrumb trail. And it, it talked about high-functioning women with ADHD. So these were doctors, lawyers, writers who had got to a point in their professional and personal lives where the ways that they'd covered up their ADHD, explained things, had become either unworkable, weren't covering it up anymore, or they in themselves had become hugely problematic. So doing everything at the last minute in intense bursts. Um, for me, loads and loads of reminders and lists and a very sort of punishing system by which I would keep myself in line huge amount of shame and one of them described living like this as like being on this fairground ride the mind scrambler where everything just spins round and round and round and round and the more you want it to stop the faster you make it spin and I'd never read anything that described how it felt to live in my head and my life like that and the more I read about both the the sort of positive stuff about adhd the energy the commitment the creativity the relentlessness <laughs> you know and the more i read about what that can be at the destructive side of that both for relationships both inside yourself the more i felt convinced this was what was happening for me particularly because for lots of women what you're diagnosed with is depression and anxiety which really is a sort of secondary to having lived as someone who's neurodivergent in a world that is not designed for you whilst not understanding why you feel like you're failing the whole time and that was both a relief and and a hugely difficult thing to process.
0: And I wonder you've written a little about how just as your life from the outside seemed enviable doing everything in these 30 minute slots but getting a a heck of a lot done that is also is it not an issue with women is that as high functioning and as as you know, people pleases, the cliche goes, that actually it can take a while to get a diagnosis because apart from in your head, everything appears to be good and inverted as and fine.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's so layered how gender plays into it because one of the reasons women don't get diagnosed is that the diagnostic models are based on men and boys and, and women have often different symptoms and experience it differently. It's often more internal and more emotional So the person that affects most is you. Boys tend to be exhibited, certainly in childhood, more disruptive, you know, risk taking behavior, which affects other people. Um, And of course, see why that gets gets picked up. Girls are more likely to be sort of daydreamers or don't, you know, don't reach their potential, you know, don't concentrate hard enough. And um, I did struggle a little bit to get taken seriously, though not thankfully by my GP who was absolutely brilliant and by that point knew me well enough to say if that feels like it might be right for you let's try and get it explored but I know lots of people who really struggle to do that and even now in my you know I'm under the care of a of a, of a psychiatrist who in our you know recent interactions has described you know it writes up the notes my version is uh subjective how I'm feeling the subjective is that Rebecca is stressed out and finding things difficult objectively she's doing fine he's the objective version I'm the subjective version and I think that that gap between how you're supposed to be as a woman as supposed to be as a mother particularly stuff about organization and planning which is very difficult for the ADHD mind and you can do a really good job of performing that you have to in lots of cases, but then that can really convince people that you don't need help. Um, and I've certainly had, you yeah, know, write about it in the book. One psychiatric nurse who triaged me said that he'd Googled me and um, he said, I hope you don't mind. I've Googled you and, and I've seen some of the things you've written. And you seem to be doing fine. Google says you wrote an article about, you know, skincare, So um, you can't have any mental health issues. And that that's fascinating and maddening. Yes, simultaneously. And how is it tested for? What is the process? Well, there are different ways that ADHD can be tested for. For me, I saw a specialist um, psychiatrist who um, interviewed me twice. I then sat a computerised test, which measures... They put a little ping pong ball on your head and you face a computer and that can pick up the tiniest movement. And all you have to do is sit for 20 minutes you've got a little button clicker And they show you a series of shapes, and circles and squares in red and blue. And all you have to do is click the button every time both the color and the shape match. And it's designed to obviously be as boring as possible. And it lasts for 20 minutes, because if you're high functioning, you can concentrate and train your way out of the boredom for a certain period of time. But normally after five minutes or so, the part of the ADHD brain, which absolutely cannot concentrate and find something important unless you're interested in it, starts to play to play into that. And so I did that test, and I, I, write, I write about it the like book. It was one of the most excruciating experiences of my life. Which is ridiculous, like clicking a button, because it felt like being exposed. There was no way to cover it up. Absolutely no. All the things that I normally have got a whole range of ways of covering up. I wasn't able to, I actually started crying during this test and I was trying really hard not to move because I didn't want to, I knew that they were counting the number of movements. I was like, shall I, shall I wipe the tears away? Is that going to skew the test? And I I came out on the 99th centile, which is you've got to be above the 96th or above to to have ADHD. So really at the top end of the spectrum for both hyperactivity and inattentiveness. I missed 35 to 36% of the, the matches And I was so shocked by that as someone that sort of had a professional life and a personal life priding about noticing things, someone that's never been described as hyperactive or felt hyperactive, that I'd moved something like 11,000 times in um, less than 15 minutes. But they were tiny, tiny little movements that people wouldn't necessarily notice. A lot of people don't sit that test and instead their parents, their uh, partners fill in questionnaires and they provide school reports and things instead of, of of doing that there's there's different different ways of it being tested for. Okay and
0: you mentioned and I would like to also come back I guess to the positive elements because I think that's maybe not talked about very much when it comes to neurodiversity so can you tell me a little bit about some of you mentioned Um, you know energy and, and getting things done what are the other things that are are to be celebrated as part of the way people's brains work when they have
1: ADHD? I find it really, really fascinating. And I, I really am still just, you know, I'm only a year and a bit after diagnosis. So I'm still sorting out which bits are just me, which bits are the ADHD. I don't, of course, know how other people think. I've always thought my way is the normal, you know, the normal, typical way of thinking. But I think for me, I completely unable to see things in isolation, I always join everything up. So, our move here to the small holding for me was lots and lots of different things in our lives and me and the world. And I had joined them up and made them into an interconnected web in which the only answer was to move to a small holding. And that's basically what I do with everything. And it's really useful if you're a writer. <laughs> you know, being able to structure things and spot patterns. And it also does allow you to see things in a different way, to realise where there are unusual routes to things, to solve problems, which a good problem solver, like a lateral thinker. Give me, you know, a broken goose shed door and a plastic bag and, you know, (laughs) I'm going to find a way, you know, make a new door out of what's there. I also think the kind of creativity and the imagination side is really important. And a lot of the, particularly, I've mainly been talking to women with ADHD, I speak to, have got a real justice and fairness driver. I can see throughout my life and my career that I, I can't support it when things feel unfair and, and when there's injustice going on. And because I'm also thinking about ADHD, it's not a lack of attention. It's a different regulation of attention. So when I am switched on to something, I'm like, (laughs) you've wound me up. I'm going to die on that hill rather than let it go. And that's a really useful characteristic for the rest of the world, actually. It, It can be pretty hard to live in it. But if you've got someone that has the energy and the commitment to keep going, is quite unafraid to take risks. In the pursuit of that and has a lack of regard for their, their you know their well-being at times, that is really useful. You need people like that. I love being like that as well as absolutely hate it.
0: <laughs> That's really interesting. Thank you for sharing that. And then some of the more surprising, I think, drawbacks and uh, you know, challenges, you mentioned that it can put a strain on relationships. And also you've talked about hypersensitivity to rejection, which is, I know that I've spoken to women before about how that can come hand in hand with ADHD. Can you describe what that feels like and how that manifests for you?
1: I mean, I've always, in everything I've done, even as a child, I, I think a real motivation has been to do everything perfectly and find no place that anyone can criticise me. And I recently was, my parents were digging out some old things and found this school report that I had written myself when I was nine. It was obviously a thing we were asked to do at school. And it's really cute. And there's things about it that are really funny, but actually, it's so sad as well. I mean, I was doing really well at school. I did really well at school. I had a a, f- a few things which if you look hard you can find the ADHD but it, it it is reasonably hard so at nine years old in really good handwriting I just write in every single thing about how I need to do better and how I just need to try hard and there's a bit at the end where it's like I think I could be a brilliant writer if I just try hard enough with all of these things and I say try hard something like 20 times in this report that I've written myself when I was nine. I think the rejection stuff is in there, definitely. And also the the masking of not feeling like everybody else. Like, if I can just, if I don't let them see any of the shonky bits. When I do experience criticism, and it is as simple as like my husband turning down the frying pan if I'm cooking, I experience that as a kind of soul level existential slight it seems ridiculous. And the ridiculousness makes it also really hard to hold that. This is about someone turning my frying pan down from six to four. But to me, it feels like they're rubbing me out. And I know that's ridiculous, but I know it's true. And I think for that sort of fragmentation is, I think, quite common. I think it's quite common for for lots of people suffering, lots of things, but certainly in, in women who haven't been diagnosed like I know how can these things both be true I'm incapable of not seeing they're both true but you know how 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 can it be how can I feel this these two things at once and I am beginning to understand now that rejection sensitivity dysphoria is something that goes hand in hand with ADHD particularly for women it's not written about and understood enough because it mainly seems to affect women Uh, but also that it is a consequence of being different feeling different and not understanding why so anything where someone has removed a bit of the things you use to cover up that difference feels like exposure and it is deeply frightening and that happens I think very early on and so yeah I've got to try and lighten up about that stuff but it it's tricky
0: (laughs) and does um and does medication help with that And, and does knowing why it is so help or are there things that people around you who love you can do to support you? Maybe it's not all, maybe it's and.
1: H- how can people support you in that sensitivity to rejection? I think there's a real sort of package of things, many of which I just have to be responsible for. Medication, I, I, have, I am medicated at the moment, and that does help. Not sure it helps me a lot with the emotional side of it at the moment. I think it definitely helps with regulating my attention. But it's been a fairly challenging 12 months in which to have an objective view for anyone about how your, you know, how, how your mental health is. I, I'm, I'm interested to see how in slightly less strange times um, I, I get on with that. But I think in terms of support, it's just retraining myself and those people around me that some of the reasons why I behave the way I do is because I do think and feel and behave quite differently <laughs> to other people and that's really hard for me to remember and accept really hard for people who've known me for 38 years to remember and accept and people who've known me for five years because I've been desperately trying to hide that so it, I think there is there is that kind of process and there's also i doing lots of work you know work you know myself to, to try and work through some of this stuff and let some of it go and I think that's just a long a long process and talking about it like this and you know writing about it and meeting other people and talking to people who say oh you know I feel I feel like that too is really 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 helpful.
0: Okay and and I wonder talking and writing about such personal things as you know we both do we are putting our hearts on a plate that is feels to me at least the ultimate in in risking rejection because people can say if they don't like our books that's almost like saying they don't like us and that's terrifying and, and i wonder how much it takes out of you to to do that and to have conversations like this with people you know that you don't know we haven't met before I, I read something you wrote on um you posted i think online about the line between wearing an outfit going on the radio and complete and utter disintegration is very thin and very blurred and that feeling of, of how we marry up those two parts of of a personality how do you navigate that
1: Badly, I imagine. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that's the place where the ADHD part of me insists. You know, I could have written my book in a very different way. It wasn't supposed to be about any of this stuff. It was going to be a gentle 12-month journey through through smallholding. But I can't leave things alone. And I've got a real honesty and integrity driver. And it's like, camp, you know, they so... I had to do it this way or I wouldn't have been interested enough to do it and I know that it's going to take it out of me and it's going to make things hard but I am not afraid of risk and that doesn't it doesn't actually make it any easier that the experiencing the rejection experiencing the disappointments but I'm just incapable of doing it in any other way and I think that's a strength and a weakness but I hope what it's doing and hearing people who, who've who read the book and have got something from it they just really value that honest the honesty that I think is mo- a lot of people reasonably don't bring because they know it will hurt them a lot and I allow myself to be distracted from the hurt long enough to to get myself in that position and you also gain a lot in that you write so well about something I am um, really interested in, like the bothness of things, you know, the difficult things and and not turning them into something shiny with a ribbon and a bow, but how you can be in a sad and bad and difficult place and still there are things in there, moments of connection, things to be taken from it. Um, the black and whiteness of life is is not, that. that's just not true. And it's really hard to hold that space for that truth, really hard to accept it. And I think... I'm so glad that I'm belligerent enough to to get myself into that place and also this time I've worked with a publisher who has supported me in the way like no other author I've ever known in the history of time has ever been supported in the way I've been supported to write this book through the publicity process and I think it genuinely would have broken me in, in, in other circumstances but I have been like loved and held and enabled and like valued at every single stage and that's restorative in it's restorative as a writer like (laughs) you know and it's restorative as a woman and it's restorative as a a person who hasn't had that experience a lot because I've been busy trying to shoehorn myself in finding working with someone who's like oh I see all of the you know all of your tangles and I value them and I'm going to try and make it easier for you is just revelatory. So That is lovely. That idea of you show all your messiness and someone still likes the
0: messiness, that's really amazing. And may I ask then about, you write about your, your marriage in the book, having a diagnosis, does that then change your relationship or is it just that you have a label for things you had been both of you aware of and experiencing anyway?
1: I think it does it does change things. Certainly for me, I mean, we've been married for a number of years that I have now forgotten, but it might be for, it might be 14, <laughs> so a, a significant number of years. And so I think just knowing something like this doesn't instantly make everything different, but it provides a framework through which to understand some of the, the things that haven't been understandable before and through which to be more connected to each other and find ways to overcome difficulties. And one of the things I am is like absolutely desperate to connect with people. I'm really interested in connecting. One of the things I love about writing, I now understand within my relationships where that is a great strength and where that it's a bit of a problem and and, and I'm trying to you know work out some of the things I can use that ADHD framework to to work out why I react to certain things in certain ways why I can't leave things alone and but I think it's not an instant doesn't solve problems instantly because both of us are programmed in you know in in ways we've been in we've been programmed for a long time but it it gives a it gives freedom to make progress I think
0: yeah so it's a yes to step forward in, in a similar direction. And the, it's really interesting to hear you talk about the kind of black and whiteness. It sounds to me as though you have always sort of been okay with being sad, but it, by dint of being okay with risk. Is that fair? Have you
1: Is that something you've tried to avoid or have you been okay with it? I don't know if I, I would say I was okay with being sad. I'm drawn, to big, I'm drawn to big feelings. Like I would rather feel big things that include hard things than not feel things at all. But I am also very I'm distra- very distractible, and I'm motivated by different things. So I, I have been distracting myself out of that's why I didn't realize I was unraveling for a really long time because I'm really good at providing the next the next distraction. I'm really focusing on that. I have always loved feeling something, and now it's trying to learn how to allow myself to rest in those feelings for a little bit longer so that I can move through them rather than just be at the sharp end of them. And and I think that's that's a challenge for me because that requires digging in and not doing my usual.
0: And actually, yes, you're right, because to sit with sadness and any emotion requires that patience, which presumably is one of a more challenging... Uh, experience. you've you've written um, you've learned more about yourself while you've been unwell than at any other time. and I'm a big fan of the of the Danish philosopher Kierkegaard who will say that despair prompts change and that once we sit with those feelings, then we get, oh, this is what I should be doing. We get messages about what to do next. And I'm interested right now more than ever, with the pandemic, more and more people are interested in doing this sort of simple life and inverted commas thing and rural sales of property are booming and striking out for the simpler life is is becoming very en vogue and is in all the papers. What advice do you have for people? What do you, what do you say when people ask you about it?
1: I mean, people do always want a, a yes or a no answer and I'm really annoying and won't give that. I wouldn't move away most of the time. I would now find it very difficult to do that I'm glad we live here and I think there are a whole range of ways in which living in a way that is more connected to the land the complex system we live in understanding you know that annoying cliche about knowing where your food comes from That said in a very flippant way but actually knowing where your food comes from and knowing how fragile that chain is and, and I'm being drawn into some of the political stuff around it you know I think there's huge value in that I caution anyone who thinks that moving house and you know having three fields and some sheep is going to make them feel better and calmer and happier you know you your all your stuff is coming with you um, all of your problems are coming with you and you will just have less time (laughs) you know and more points of tension (laughs) is that a bad thing what if less time and more points of tension makes you get to the point where I got to where I had to realize some very difficult things about myself that has led to positive change and, and diagnosis so don't come expecting your hands to be soft and your mind to be calm but like bring a spade and Dig in and roll your sleeves up and make sure you, you know, put that in the in the context of where we are in the world now and maybe you won't regret it sometimes.
0: <laughs> and if you do, just write to Rebecca. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And how has it
1: been with so you have sheep? Do you have goats also? So we don't actually have sheep. We we some we, we have our neighbours' sheep have sometimes run in our, our field. But we have um we have goats um who've kidded for the first time this year. Um I've just been out this morning putting them in the big field with the billy goat for the first time. So looking out the window, making sure he's not chasing them and they're all, you know, getting on as a, you know, as a herd. So for a a townsperson, um, that means that the billy goat is on with
0: the horns and the worry is that it will come and like hit the kids with the horns? They're
1: often... When they're, you know, a week old, disbudded, so the horn, the horn buds are removed. Um, we haven't disbudded our our kids, but he has. He has been, but he's, um, yeah, he's their father, and he's very pleased to see their mothers, and he's being really well behaved. But he's quite big, and he's quite excitable, and um, I just want to make sure that the nanny goats, um, who are still, you know, only a month or two after giving birth, aren't. Um, being chased around too much, and the kids aren't being worried oh. by their father and hopefully they will just settle down and get back together as a as a sort of natural as a natural herd. we'll we'll see it's going well so far it's going well so far
0: (laughs) we're children we're all hoping the daddy goat isn't too excited to see the mummy goat (laughs) and have you had to so we have had a nest box in our garden with a nest camera and we had nine little eggs that hatched and there were little um, hatchlings which is very exciting and then they all died and it was that bit of the getting my kids to watch that every day after school and then the one day we turned it on and nobody's doing anything. And it it's a you know it's a good way to learn about death and to explain that sadness. And yes, it's very sad and, and it happens. And I'm happy that we're able to do it with small creatures rather than with close family members so far. But I wonder
1: if that's something you've had to teach your children. Yeah. I mean it's it can be very brutal. I mean even just you know, we grow a lot of, you know, in no way self sufficient. We definitely still go to the supermarket, um, but we grow a lot of a, a lot of food, and even just things that you know, the kids have got their own little bits of garden and they sow seeds. They've saved up the money, bought the seeds, they've tended for them, and then one day the slug comes and eats everything, and that's a like, it's a loss. It's all that work, and that, you know, and that's really hard for them. It's a good lesson, but it's a hard lesson. You know, our, our kidding, this, you know, it was the first kidding we've ever done. And it had, I was nervous about it. We all had COVID for the whole of March, really ill. So I had to like drag myself to the sick bed to deal with the kidding. And, and it was a really difficult and complicated kidding. And that they're, they're not, that that's not actually how it usually is. And one of the kids died. And so, twins, twins. The the goat belongs to my seven-year-old. The children were really excited. They were really, really upset and distressed by it. And there's points in that where you think, why am I exposing them to this? But I I do think there's a a lot to learn in there. And being shielded from that doesn't protect you from from it happening um, as you get older um so I'm grateful I'm grateful for it even though I sometimes think could we just have a like could we just have a good run for six months like no no chickens tipping themselves into the water trough and no you know, oh, no. <laughs> you know? Um, but out there at the moment it's sunny and two little kids are doing that thing where they jump in the air little goat kids and then click their heels together and spin round, and and that's just incredibly joyful as well
0: Yes the the highs and lows um and yeah and experiencing these small doses of discomfort and difficulty and sadness I think certainly does help equip kids to handle the bigger stuff and and helps with risk but I read that you have taken it to another level with your daughter who jumped through a ring of fire please can you tell me about this?
1: (laughs) Um so we um have often gone to a family festival called Starry Skies, which um, hopefully will be on again next year. Um, and everyone should go, because it's absolutely brilliant. It's it's not a music festival, it's designed for kids and families, and but there's loads of nice stuff for, for adults there too. When we went a few years ago, my daughter was not quite old enough, but she lied about her age, um, <laughs> said she was nine, to join this thing called The Tribe. So they take the kids into the forest, And they build this community and they take risks. They're supervised by Yeah. But a lot of it, I I interviewed the, the chap who set it up, who's got a huge experience, a lot of experience working with kids who are often pushed out of the educational system, seen as problem children. And he uses this risk-taking so they, they they work together on a performance and one of the things they do is there's a ring of fire and they they do this kind of they've written this sort of acting singing and and each time each one of them then jumps through the ring of fire onto a mattress they haven't done it before some of them are really cool with it some of them are nervous about it but they all do it and it's really it sounds kind of you know a bit silly but it's really meaningful to them and I, I got I chance to talk to my daughter about it and so I was saying you know How did you feel about being like, did they tell you it might burn you? And they're like, no, that like it was obvious it was going to burn us. But when you tell me all the things that could go wrong, you know, be careful because of this, don't do this, it just makes me worried about doing it. When they show me how to do it safely and then let me do it, and that was a real lesson for me in kind of letting go of some of that stuff and letting her take those risks and what that meant to her to be trusted to do it. So um, not that I enjoy watching my children jump through fire. <laughs>
0: I think that's fantastic. I loved reading about that. And I think in COVID as well, with so much of many of us have spent time indoors or, or children haven't been able to take risks so much. I think nature is a really
1: good path
0: to getting back out there and, and taking those risks.
1: Absolutely. Especially when we've, we've encouraged them to see other people as risks, you know, finding ways to not see other people as inherently risky, I think is going to be really important for kids over the next couple of years. That's really interesting. Yeah. How do you how do you talk to your children about that? I I can't say that I have really other than at the moment, of course, they're in school again, and they're being encouraged to see their classmates in in a non risky way. I don't know how we we do that. You know, my daughter, it's her last year at primary school, they usually do a big summer production, and they're not gonna be able to do that because they're It's not safe for them all to go into the hall together and perform to the parents. And that, you know, that level of a lack of safety being going into your school hall and the parents coming in. I don't know how we get over that. I hope that it's just gradual and and demonstrating it and that our human desire to be with other people overcomes it. But I'm interested to see how it plays out in in this generation of children, because it will have been, surely it will have been formative.
0: Yeah, I'm sure it will. Yeah. And, and this podcast is about how to be sad. Well, so I would love to end, I guess, by asking you what helps you now. And then I want to know what advice you would give your 21 year old self knowing all you know, now about how to be sad. Well, so what helps you? So I
1: think what helps me practically um, is speaking, talking to other people, listening to other people and reading other people who have felt sad or have felt difficult feelings I'm finding those people everybody feels things in different ways but I think there's quite often like oh I'm I'm kind of like I, I really identify with the way this person experiences that so that's why I got into reading memoir I just wanted to hear mainly from from women but not exclusively people who had found things difficult but didn't think that was valueless or something to be pushed away i mean i i do stuff like i i writing helps me so i realize that i write little bits of mainly poetry because it doesn't take very long in order to switch my mind onto it but in a way that isn't so self-critical that's just you know i can concentrate on that and then the going outside so going outside really helps me i need to do a certain thing when i'm outside i need to be physically active I can't just rest in in nature very often unless the nature is really big I need mountains if I'm going to (laughs) rest I need mountains feel like they might meet my sadness but if I'm not in the mountains then if I'm doing something if I'm weeding if I'm digging and so knowing what those things are and remembering to do them which is really hard making yourself do them or finding someone else who's like go outside now out the door don't care if you don't feel like it, get out there, I think is really, really important. Oh God, what would I tell my 21 year old self? That's a really hard one. Yeah, I'd probably tell her that she she's doing a really good job and she doesn't need to try so hard. Give yourself a break sometimes. When I got diagnosed, that the psychiatrist had sort of talked to me about everything and just before I left, he said, um, why do you think your husband is with you? To which I was, I, I, I realized I just couldn't answer. I was like, I don't, I don't know. I like, I wonder that all the time at the moment. And he was like, well, he was like, it's because he loves you. And he loves loads of things about you. And probably some of the difficult things too. He, he said, you're very, very hard on yourself. Maybe you need to be a bit more like your husband and think of the things about yourself that are like, likable. And I wish I had told my 21 year old self that there were inherently, I was a like, lovable person and that I was allowed to feel those things for myself, I would whisper that in her ear a lot. <laughs> Thank you. I think that's a very important answer. Thank you so much for joining
0: me today. It's been a real pleasure to speak to you, and Earth is out now. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me today. Please do rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help others find us and helps us to make more episodes. You can find out more about How To Be Sad, the book and the podcast online at Ms. Helen Russell. And take care.